Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Thanks for listening in again this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Welcome to February, right? A uh, couple of random thoughts as we begin this week. First, I want to highly recommend the TV show Your Honor. Uh, it's on Showtime, and for Canadian listeners, you'll find that on Crave. Uh, it stars Brian Cranston and is an absolutely excellent show. And of course, it's hard for many of us not to see Cranston as Walter White from Breaking Bad. I still see him as Tim Watley, the dentist on Seinfeld. But honestly, it's an excellent show, and, and Cranston is an excellent actor. Uh, it's one of those strange experiences in 2021 where you actually have to wait for new episodes to, to be released. Uh, second, uh, random thought, I love getting new running shoes. Now, don't mistake me for being a runner. Okay, let's get that right. I do exercise regularly, but I'm sure my eating habits negate any positive impact. Uh, however, I hadn't bought new running shoes in over two years. Uh, because I'm an indoor runner, my shoes don't really take a lot of external sort of beating, but it was obvious that they had worn down on the inside. So I went and got new shoes and oh my word, the difference was unbelievable. Um, I have this rotation going on where my last pair of running shoes become my everyday walk around shoes. The pair before that become my new yard work shoes and the old yard work shoes are then tossed. And by the time they get that deep into the rotation, they are thrashed. So I definitely get my money's worth out of each pair I buy. <laughs> so there you have it. Two useless pieces of information about my life, but at least now you know more, right? <laughs> so um, as I always say, uh, your listening and subscribing to the podcast means a lot, and I really do appreciate the support. And if you feel up to spreading the word on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, I would really appreciate that too. Today, I'm excited to have Shauna Brown, who is known as Teach for the Culture on Instagram. We talk about racial equity both in schools and in society as a whole, so really great conversation. And you might remember, listeners, my recommending her as an Instagram follow way back in episode one, so I finally was able to get Shauna on the podcast. In Assessment Corner this week, I have, I've had a few questions uh, in different Zoom trainings about how moving to standards-based grading is, quote-unquote, more work. Uh, so I'm going to address the concept of a net zero change effort uh, when it comes to grading reform. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Shauna Brown is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by talking about three things I'm completely done with. The first is the Bernie Sanders meme. Honestly, that meme should have lasted maybe one day, and that would have been one day too many for me. I didn't get it. Okay, look, I got it, so <laughs> spare me the explanations. I don't need the Bernie Sanders meme explained to me. Um, it was a good effort, and uh, in the moment, I get that maybe we were desperate for some comic relief, uh, but this one fell flat. It's okay. You know, not every meme is that funny. And for me, this one wasn't at all, especially more than two weeks after the inauguration. Please, someone make it stop. Okay, no more. Hey, look, it's Bernie hanging out in our Zoom happy hour. I'm done with it. And also don't give me the whole, you know, Tom, you just don't have a sense of humor retort. Like I do. The Bernie Sanders meme, not funny. Now, that said, I got to give Bernie Sanders some props because he did raise, I think, $1.8 million for charity by putting the meme on some merchandise. So thankfully, a lot of good came out of that meme, but funny wasn't one of them. Two, 
I'm done with instant replay in sports, honestly, and I've been done for a few years on this one, because what was supposed to be a good idea is completely ruining sports. Human error has always been a part of sports, and sports is about entertainment. Like, there is no real reason for the Bucks to play the Chiefs in the Super Bowl this week. It's not essential to our society, and if they didn't play the game, we'd all survive. It's all about entertainment. Trust me, sports is a big part of my life. You heard me talk about fantasy football all throughout the fall, so I watch sports all the time. But instant replay is ruining every sport. Once we allow replay to ruin the fan experience, we've completely lost the plot. Anything will look suspicious when you have it under high-definition, super slow motion. And I remember a couple of years ago, and this was kind of the breaking point for me. I was watching the NBA Finals. I I think it was the Finals with the Raptors and the Warriors. And the Raptors had the ball. Kyle Lowry was dribbling up the court. And one of the Warriors knocks the ball out of bounds. Raptors ball, right? Wrong. Replay shows the ball just grazing off of Kyle Lowry's pinky finger. Turnover, Warriors ball. That's the wrong call. Everyone saw with their own eyes what happened. Pinky or no pinky, it's the wrong call. The ball was knocked out by the Warriors. The only reason the ball went in that direction is because it was knocked out by by the Warriors player. I'm done with it. It has to stop. I mean, if replay were 100% accurate, then fine. But how many times have you been watching a game and then they say, well, we didn't have enough evidence to overturn the call? Exactly. Not enough evidence. If there was obvious evidence, the call would have been different. So that's five minutes of our lives or more that we'll never get back. Now get back, for me, get back to refereeing and human error, I say. Yeah, sometimes replay gets it right and the reversal is right. But more often than not, it's just completely ruining the fan experience And I've been off of instant replay in sports for a couple of years now. And third, I'm done with talking about the COVID learning loss. Seriously, if I hear one more person talk about the loss or the COVID slide, the only question will be how massive my eye roll is and how loud my pushback. Talk about tone deaf. Is it really that hard to remember that right now students and teachers are surviving the worst pandemic in over a century. Now look, I'm not talking about those truly essential learning outcomes, you know, the truly essential literacy and numeracy skills. I get that. But after that, what are we really talking about here? First, the overwhelming messages I've heard for the past 10 months is how one of the silver linings of COVID is it's forced us to prioritize and decide what truly matters in terms of learning and assessment evidence that those conversations were long overdue. So how can we say that, but then think, well, we've got to get them caught up. Those two thoughts are incongruent. Either you believe the standards and outcomes and goals were all essential, or you believe that we can get an adequate sampling of learning without students covering every single standard or every single unit. Now, if you're going to pick one standard and say, what about this, Tom? Then you're just being a contrarian because obviously there are some things that matter, And the vast majority of teachers I've interacted with have been able to create engaging, rich, deep learning opportunities for students, especially now that we're 10 months plus into this whole COVID experience. The second, isn't the pandemic stressful enough on students and teachers without having to deal with this whole, oh, by the way, once we're back to normal, you'll need to make up the last one to two years of learning loss. These are not widgets, okay? And putting a little overtime in is not the answer. And if I have any influence over 
principals or district leaders or even those working at departments or ministries of education immediately stop talking about catch-up unless it's something that's truly extraordinary. Now look, I have talked to many teachers who've told me that they have a few students who have just fallen off the radar and that despite the collective efforts of everyone in the school, they have not really been heard from. And this is incredibly heartbreaking. And and yes, you know, we have to do everything we can to reconnect them. And if they're high school students, they, they may have to do some catching up to earn credits toward graduation. I get it. But there is a reason we call these exceptions to the rule. When people try to argue the exceptions as the norm, they are, again, just being argumentative and contrarian. By constantly talking about gaps to the masses, it's only going to raise anxieties and make it less likely that students and teachers can focus on what truly matters now. If I have one eye on catching up, then I can't be fully immersed in the now, both in terms of emotionally supporting my students, but also helping them learn. I mean, even those who are face-to-face know that right now in their situations know it's not the same as it was before. And the other reason I'm done with this conversation is because this falling behind narrative, for the most part, is completely manufactured. Falling behind whom exactly? Last year's students? I mean, did it ever occur to us that maybe last year's students, or more importantly, the years before last, because obviously we were dealing with COVID toward the end of last year, did it ever occur to us that maybe they were doing too much? That maybe some of the assessments and the evidence were redundant? That we didn't need to do as much, or we didn't need to do it at the pace that we were doing it? Falling behind what, this year's students? Again, this is a global pandemic. Where's this mythological school where everyone is on pace as they were in years past. The last time I checked, the standards weren't a third tablet brought down by Moses for Mount Sinai. There will only be gaps if you compare students to previous years. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is going to suck the joy out of learning more than a post-COVID pre-assessment month where we identify all the ways in which the students are less than when compared to years previous. They're falling behind a completely invented scope and sequence that adults created sans global pandemic. It's an illusion. If we just focus on creating the most engaging learning opportunities now and focus on the skills and critical 21st century competencies now, we will, without a doubt, serve our learners in ways that rival, maybe even surpass previous years. Not completing your favorite unit does not mean the students are falling behind. Talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. All the adults just constantly telling each other that the students are falling behind. Guess what you're going to see? Yep, students falling behind. Honestly, it's enough. Yes, as I said, there are exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, catching up is an arbitrary comparison based on a manufactured norm of coverage agreed upon in a pre-pandemic world. A return to normal does not mean we have to go back to everything we once thought of as quote-unquote normal. Either we find the silver lining to rethink that which is truly essential, or we miss the moment and slide back into sacred routines that we all believe were sacred only because we kept telling each other they were so.
Joining me today is Shauna Brown. I am so excited to have Shauna on the podcast today. She is an instructional leader. She is a consultant, an educator, and an entrepreneur with over 17 years of experience working in public schools. Shauna is currently the assistant principal at Academy, the Academy of Aerospace and Engineering in Windsor, Connecticut. Uh, Shauna is also uh, known for her work at, with Teach for the Culture, a company that she started uh, Teach for the Culture is a brand dedicated to empowering and positively affirming its clientele by fostering a sense of pride in culture and self in the field of education and beyond. Listeners, you may recall back in episode one that Teach for the Culture was one of the first social media recommendations I made on the podcast, and I knew back then that I wanted to have Shauna on the podcast, and here we are today. She is also, believe it or not, the founder of Melanin in STEM, which is a movement dedicated to increasing representation in STEM, particularly of people of color and women, by increasing access to mentors and educational opportunities, as well as highlighting the stories of people of color in STEM. Shauna is clearly a woman who never sleeps uh, with all of her projects and all of the incredible influence that she is having both in education and outside. So with all of that, Shauna, I wanna welcome you to the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. I've been I've been waiting for this day for a long time. Been been following you on Instagram and and just really impressed with not just the messaging but the way you go about the work. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So let's start with the Shauna Brown biography. Um, walk us through the arc of your career. Like how do you how do you begin your career and how do you end up here today, starting both Melanin and STEM, Teach for the Culture. You're an assistant principal at the Academy of Aerospace and Engineering. Walk us through the the arc of your career and and tell us a little bit more about who Shauna Brown is. All right, sure. So surprisingly, I actually, at age three, decided I wanted to become a teacher. And at that time, I actually started um, doing things around, like, you know, setting up my dolls and, like, pretending to teach them. Um, <laughs> by the time I got to age 11, I started a business, which was a baby, babysitting club, because, again, I, I was very interested in working with youth. Um, yeah. By age 14, 15, I... Um, was teaching at church, so teaching church school. So again, working with like preschoolers and, and younger children. And mm -hmm. um, and just straight, you know, I went into college. Um, I went to Temple University um, for mm -hmm. undergrad and majored in education. And again, all through undergrad, you know, I worked in youth centers and the YMCA, mm -hmm. um, summer programs, summer youth programs. And so my passion for working with youth has really been, um, you know, a, a lifelong journey and a lifelong love. Mm -hmm. um, after leaving Temple University, I went to Columbia University in New York City, um, where I majored in urban education and policy. And so at that time, I'm looking more broadly around education and not just around the teaching and learning pieces, but around all of the issues surrounding society and policy and everything else that surrounds education and kind of influences or impacts it and, and vice versa. Um, so I, I taught in Philadelphia, yep. I taught in New York City and Brooklyn, as well yep. as Manhattan. And then I came to Connecticut, um, where I, you know, I was a classroom teacher, as well as an instructional coach. Um, mm -hmm. I was a district coordinator for a program for um, immigrant and refugee um, children. And so children coming from all over the world, all different yeah. languages. Um, mm -hmm. 4,000 students. And so it was kind of um, working with, um, and, and many of the students had limited or interrupted schooling. Yeah. And so it was working with teachers, working with um, district leaders, community leaders, um, refugee resettlement agencies in supporting the students in that community. 
Mm -hmm. um, after that, I went on to become um, a consultant for the State Department of Education. And so again, looking at education from another aspect. So I went from classroom to district and now looking at it statewide. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really becoming kind of an administrator for a lot of the federal um, initiatives in education, including Title III, including at that time it was Race to the Top right. and um, different educational um, kind of initiatives and policy around education yeah. throughout the state, as well as supporting districts with improving outcomes for um, their schools and for the districts on a whole, especially districts who were um, struggling a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It was also developing professional development for districts and working with them on how to um, kind of plan strategically around how they want to see the improvement come about within their school and within their districts. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I was, and I was going to say, and I, and I, you know, working at that level, I also missed being in schools. And so that's when mm -hmm. I went back to working directly in schools with, um, you know, teachers, with students, um, with administrators. And that is really where my love is. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, you know, an assistant principal, was acting principal at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that is that maybe the motivation for, uh, you know, going into administration because you sort of have maybe a little bit of influence in the best of both worlds. You're still connected to students, but from an administrator's perspective, you you have a little bit more influence over policy and practice. Is that is that a little bit of the motivation for you to be in administration and, and get back to a school? Um. Yes, I would say yes. I think kind of so I loved being in the classroom. Yeah. I still love teaching. That is my, you know, my very first love. Yeah. And so going to administration for me was it allowed me to um, spread some of those the best practices that I saw a lot of success with within the classroom and help mm -hmm. other teachers to become, um, you know, just to to be able to impact and inspire and and raise student achievement and just right. all the the beautiful things that I love about teaching. <laughs> That's right. So. You know, so it gave me the chance to to come back and to be able to work directly with students and be able to right. work with teachers and to help them um, to, you know, provide better experiences for students. Right. Uh, before we dig into uh, uh, some of the questions I want to ask you today, uh, in doing my Shauna Brown research, you <laughs> cite you cite your uh, trip to Ghana as one of the most impactful uh, experiences you had in uh, in your life, um, uh, professional and personal. So um, tell us about that. Absolutely. So in the early 2000s, I had the wonderful opportunity to, um, I was awarded a Fulbright scholarship, a Fulbright fellowship. And so I was able to travel to um, Ghana, West Africa with 12 other educators um, from around the state. Um, and we spent about two months there um, during the time in Ghana, we were able to, um, we went to university lectures at the University of Ghana. We were able to um, visit a lot of schools, work with teachers, work with students there. Um, we were also able to, and this is probably one of the most impactful parts, we were able to go to the um, slave castles in Elmina, Cape Coast. And so going there for me, um, was very, um, it was almost spiritual um, because being there and seeing what they call the door of no return. So the places where they, um, where people were taken from Ghana and loaded onto ships. Yeah. For me, it was like, wow, I'm the first person in my family to ever come back to this space since my ancestors were taken from this place 
wow. 300 years ago. And so it was like almost like a full circle, very special, very powerful moment. Yeah. Um, and just being there, um, getting to know the people, um, learning more about the culture. It mm-hmm. was very, um, it was eye-opening. It was also um, affirming in many ways. It also helped me to see where I have come from. And so seeing a lot of the similarities with the culture there and um, seeing how that has um, made its way across the Middle Passage into the Americas and seeing a lot mm-hmm. of things that we've kept culturally and kind of the ancestral memory that many people don't know that we even have, but it, it's, right. it exists. Yeah. Um, it's just really, really powerful. Wow. Um, and the whole point of kind of the trip, the kind of the Fulbright was to be able to um, come back and share with other teachers and other educators what Africa is really like, because in the media and what we learn a lot of times about Africa in the West is that it's, you know, quote unquote, uncivilized, or it's not really developed, or that, you know, there's animals in the jungle, and it's totally different. It's a, it's right. a you know, we were a metropolitan area, very um, progressive. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, being able to come back and, and kind of share about um, Ghana and to help people teach more about Africa from um, a more informed perspective. Yeah, you are. I, I, I can't even imagine how uh, emotional that must have been for you, just in terms of your yeah. your family's ancestry. You you are so right about about uh, Africa. Uh, I've traveled to Africa several times. I've 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 worked with international schools in South Africa, uh, oh. in Ethiopia, in Kenya, and as well as uh, Nigeria in Lagos. I've never made it to Ghana, but having spent time in in all of those, and again, I'm working with international schools, so not the local schools, but still, you get a you get a feel for. Uh, the culture as you're out, as you are uh, traveling to and from the school, as as you're interacting in the community. And you're absolutely right about how, uh, and I've had the similar experience in the Middle East, which is, you know, what we are shown here in North America versus what the experience is like uh, in terms of being there is just uh, a great way to undercut so many stereotypes and, and undercut the the misunderstandings that, that folks might have. So, uh, I feel very grateful for having had those opportunities to to travel there several times and just to really experience the people and the culture. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, and that's me. So I, I can't imagine for you, just in terms of your your ancestry and your family, how impactful oh, yeah. that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. And just yeah. growing up in the United States, you know, as an as an African American woman, yeah. all my life I've been in a country where I am in the you know the minority, right? Yeah. And so going there for the first time and, and seeing people all around that look like you and seeing the representation in banks and in medical offices and just everywhere is something, yeah. it's an experience very different than um, what we see here in the States. For sure, for sure. It, it is a different experience. They always say that travel is how you break down stereotypes and prejudice, right? By, by immersing yourself in, in other countries. Yeah. Okay. And I think even learning about myself there too, you know. Well, the, there is that self-reflective piece, isn't there? When you're in environments, and again, for me, same thing. It's a it's a different environment, and you really do reflect on yourself, and you learn a lot about yourself when you're in places right. that um, that that are unknown and and right. uncomfortable. I've really appreciated the opportunity to return to certain places uh, because it, the the level of comfort continues to grow as you understand the people, the culture. And all of those experiences. Absolutely. Okay, I want to pivot to uh, a conversation about schools, and I want to talk about um, allyship, racial equity, and and a little bit of where we are today. So, starting with schools, uh, we're we're going to expand a little bit to society. But you know, we're just over eight months uh, removed from George Floyd's murder. Uh, there was 
certainly at the time, an explosion of uh, allyship that occurred in the summer and, and continues today. And I mean, obviously, racial equity is not a new issue in 2020. We know that. But something did seem to shift in society, including in schools where there seemed to be quite an intense and a, an acute reflection on systemic racism uh, that seems to have occurred in schools. So I want to ask this question in two parts, and I'll begin with the first part. The first part is, what has you feeling much more optimistic now about where schools are in general when it comes to addressing systemic racism than maybe just a year ago, you know, last January prior to, to the events of last summer? Uh, what has you feeling optimistic right now, Shauna? I think one of the things that has me feeling more optimistic is that there's definitely more awareness around issues of race and racial justice. Whereas um, prior to um, the events of the summer, they were, um, you know, of course, many people have, have known what has been going on for years, but there right. was more, I would say, um, less awareness from certain populated, from certain groups. Um, and so I think there's definitely more awareness around it. There's definitely more, um, I think more discussions around it as well. Um, mm -hmm. Not just the awareness, but people are more willing, are, 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 we have to pause it, but people yeah. are more willing to um, discuss or engage in discourse around issues of race and racial justice, I think, than right. they were prior to um, this year. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you, what, what was it in, from your perspective that that was different about last summer. Why? Why 2020? Why? Um, why George Floyd? Why? Why was that the the? Uh, because there have been so many incidents in the past. You go back right. to Rodney King. You go back to to uh, you know and 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 Michael Brown and and uh, like you know. So why 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 yeah. George Floyd? Why last summer? I think there's a combination of things, but I think one of them. Um, was the fact that we are in the midst of a pandemic. Okay. And so between March and May 26th or 25th, when it happened, um, people were doing less. They were going out less. They had more time to just sit. They had less distractions. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't you know, going to the gym as much and, and going to work in person in, in places. And there, there were no sports on. It was kind of like a time to just sit. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think right. having that opportunity um, with with less distractions yeah. um, and then seeing the actual footage um, and, and just the way it um, happened with and, and just watching it for, for the, the amount of time um, that also having come on the heels of um, two other incidents, the, the incident of the Brianna Taylor um, yeah as well as Ahmaud Arbery just Ahmaud a couple Arbery. months before and then the incident with um, in Central Park in New York right. City mm -hmm. with the woman calling the, the police and um, alleging um, that a black man was you know, assaulting yeah. her. And yeah. so I think all of those things happening in the midst of a pandemic when yeah. people are more still and more quiet and paying more attention to, to, to things that they may not have otherwise paid attention to yeah. um, was able to bring kind of more awareness to, to what was going on. Yeah, it, it's amazing how quickly we pivoted from the the incident in Central Park, which which was a clear and obvious attempt to weaponize the police against that man, mm -hmm. and uh, caught on video. And we had j just a few days of that before, you know, right. it seemed like the the world exploded in terms of uh, and and how we don't even talk, almost don't even talk about that, or you just don't hear about that anymore. But 
you know, again, just another example of, uh, and I think in this age now of video, uh, you know, you just, you can't get away with anything really anymore right. without at least being caught on, on video for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an interesting dynamic. I mean, it's, 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 you, you often, you know, one of the questions I have is, you know, what, what took us so long, but on the other hand, you know, at least we're having the conversation now it's better than right. not having it. And and I think mm-hmm. we're, you're, you're right. At the same time, here's part two of the question. Um, what has you feeling a little bit pessimistic or maybe a lot pessimistic? What, what, are, what has disappointed you say, for example, in the last eight months, what, what did you anticipate eight months ago that you thought we would, we would be in a different place here in January? Yeah. And I think, I think we have, I think there has been some, some progress. Mm-hmm. Um, the needle may have moved a, a little bit. Um, but even after the incident, because there have been so many, because, so I've been aware of these incidents since I was 16 watching them over and over and over, knowing people personally who similar things have happened to, and I've lost people that I know in that same way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I've seen, you know, where there is kind of more of awareness and then it fizzles out. And then there's right. a little bit more awareness and it fizzles out. Yeah. Um, this time, I think it was even more global. Yeah. But I think one thing that has me a little bit more pessimistic is the fact that um, I think Immediately following the incident, a lot of districts, schools put out statements. Um, you know, they there were equity statements. There is okay, we're committed to this work, and I think and a lot of that was an effort to not look racist or be implicated within the, all the things that were being pointed out. Right. Because if you recall, there were you know people were it wasn't just looking at police brutality and racial no. injustice in the police area, but they started to look at statues and in different mm-hmm. institutions and in corporations. Mm-hmm. And so I think the effort by a lot of school districts was, we don't want to be implicated in this. And so let's quickly put up a statement and say, this is where we stand. Um, but right. there has to be the action behind it as well. It can't just, the, the statement is not enough. Right. The commitment, right. the signs on the lawn are not enough. There has mm-hmm. to be the action that comes behind it and the real work that goes into it and implicating yourself. Right. You have to right. be able to say, yes, we have been a part of this. Now, how are we going to change? Not just pointing the finger in other places, but actually taking ownership and saying, what has our role been in this? Right. It's, it's um, it, you can change the name of the school. Uh, but if the way we operate and the system itself doesn't change, then changing the name of the school is that, you know, it's superficial. And it's, and, and so from your perspective, it's almost like, and I can see, we, I can see your point that, that schools, districts, et cetera, just trying to get ahead of the story mm-hmm. instead of really the, the level of acknowledgement that's necessary and, and to stop taking it so personally, um, right. you know, if, if you haven't been discriminatory and if you haven't acted that way, then you shouldn't have a problem acknowledging the larger picture right. and then doing some serious reflection on what we need to do instead of just saying, we're out in front of this and we're going to change the name of the school or we're going to change the name of the football team or we're going to change our mascot. And, and, and that kind of ends there and then it kind of fizzles from there. So I, I think right. your point is well taken. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, learning and assessment in particular um, because um, one thing I've been doing lately is some deeper thinking about how we can create more uh, culturally responsive assessments. Um, you know, my area of focus is in assessment. And in particular, I've been talking and thinking about, um, and I've done a couple of think alouds on the previous two podcasts about 
how to incorporate storytelling into our assessment practices. And storytelling, of course, is embedded in, in indigenous cultures and many African right. cultures. So I, I think there's a path forward to expand what we think is um, valid, authentic, culturally responsive assessment and culturally responsive evidence. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, how, how do you think we can create more culturally responsive assessment systems? Yeah, so I think, and 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 again, um, thank you for acknowledging that. You know, storytelling has been a part of um, many indigenous cultures as well as African cultures for mm -hmm. centuries. And so, I yeah. think, along with, and I'm glad that you you have even brought up the point of assessment, because I think a lot of times in culturally responsive teaching or pedagogy, people kind of stop at the teaching and the more surface level, as opposed to going deeper. And how are we assessing and acknowledging? different types of learning, different cultures, different um, different bodies of knowledge and the, and the way right. um, knowledge is expressed. All of that has to, to come into play um, when we talk about reforming or, or um, changing the way we're doing things in schools. Right. So, um, you know, just for, we have to be able to expand what we view as um, kind of knowledge and ways of being and knowing mm -hmm. and then ways of showing um what we know as well yeah. and i think storytelling um especially since it's, it's been such a, a deep and embedded part of our culture um cultures with in terms of african cultures and indigenous cultures but i think yeah. that is um that could be a very powerful way of showing and and, and um showing what we know yeah I, I, you... I should say I haven't really flushed out the idea entirely, as I as I told listeners. You know, it's, it represents more of a think aloud than anything. But, you know, and and the title of those segments was atypical assessments. But one of the things that I asserted in those those uh, segments was they're only atypical if we have a very narrow view. Like if if you look at learning through the lens of a white Eurocentric lens, then sure, storytelling feels atypical in that we value the stapled packet of paper and that we value the tangible. And yet we're really not talking about a zero sum game here. We're talking about expanding. I think you use the word expanding as well, expanding what we accept as authentic evidence of learning that doesn't necessarily have to come from the written word. And so it, it's something I'm going to uh, dig deeper into. And and uh, I may reach out to you, Shauna, and just bounce a few yeah. ideas off of you, because it's something that right now I'm in the midst of thinking about how do we, because I think you're right. There's there's a lot out there about culturally responsive teaching, con, mm -hmm. you know, curriculum, you know, pedagogy, et cetera. But the question around assessment about how can we become more culturally and and maybe it isn't just about responsiveness but it's how can we be more culturally expansive That's about right. our assessment practices as well right absolutely uh, yeah so uh, so stay tuned you might get an email from me <laughs> down the road <laughs> <Send it. laughs> That's right. Um, one of the expressions before we pivot to more societal questions, because I am interested in your take on a few things that, that I've sort of heard recently, but one of the expressions you often use, uh, especially on your teacher, uh, your t-shirts and your merchandise. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, listeners, the teach for the culture merch is fantastic. So, uh, don't forget to check that out. Um, you, one of the expressions I love is that joy and learning must coexist. So how do we do that? How do we get, from your perspective, how do we get joy and learning to coexist? So that is one of my, um, as you said, one of my quotes, what am I saying? It's something I deeply believe in. Um, as the classroom teacher, I kind of operated from that level. And okay. so knowing that um, you don't have to um, just, it, it, education should be 
about fulfillment. It should be about being able to express yourself. It should be um, about being able to um, follow your dreams and, 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 and feel a sense of joy, right? And mm-hmm. so right. I think having that in a learning space kind of recognizes the humanity of students and the humanity of teachers and educators. Mm-hmm. Um, joy is a natural, it's something that we should all be able to feel. Um, and it's something that to me, again, should be included in the learning space. There right. were some, so I, so in kindergarten through fifth grade, I went to Catholic school. And so <laughs> there were many grades, there were many teachers within the school at that time who felt that like joy did not belong in a right. school. Right. And not just in my Catholic school, but in schools all over. Yeah, um, in there general. are many places in general yeah. that feel that um, in order to learn, you have to be serious, you have mm-hmm. to sit still, you mm-hmm. have to sit up, you have to fold your hands. It looks one way. And right. to me, that is not, you're not, first, you're not acknowledging humanity and just the, 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 how children behave naturally, yeah. but that is not how learning occurs to me. Mm-hmm. So to me, learning occurs with, there's, you can, there can be music, there can be movement, right. mm-hmm. there can be, um, again, like going back to your point about assessment, different ways of showing what you know. Right. To me, all of that encompasses um, the joy that should be incorporated or should be included within learning spaces, um, as opposed yeah. to just sitting still, having it look one way, writing, handing it in. Mm-hmm. Um, why not be able to have fun right. and be able to, um, you know, just just expand the way we think education should look. Yeah, and it's, so again, it's a- that's. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it's interesting when you look at, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but uh-huh. it just takes me right back to our, our conversation about, you know, where do these traditions come from? Where where does this tradition of sit, be quiet, be serious come from? When we when we look at the history of, of sort of uh, the churches of Northern Europe, where, you know, uh, the, the the habits of, of, of what, what was good behavior uh, in a church and how those traditions grew in North America and what we what we define as acceptable behavior in school it it all traces back to those traditions and oh. again the word expansion right absolutely absolutely so my parents are from Jamaica and so they grew up under British colonial rule in Jamaica right. mm-hmm. and so all of the schools all the churches were all run by um, Great Britain and mm-hmm. it was absolutely you know, a place where um, those schools believe that there was no room for anything else except for having your uniform perfectly ironed, sitting still, being able to recite just rote memorization as Mm -hmm. opposed to the the natural um, inclination of people to to feel joy and to be able to have a freedom of expression. Right, right. So almost learning, learning through fear of uh, fear of of the wrath of what might might fear and punishment and right. Yeah, it could be. Uh, I mean, we think about, you know, uh, it's such a simple concept to to maintain the joy of learning. And yet we do so many things, either inadvertently or intentionally, to suck right. the joy out of learning and, and leave right. it as this obligation as opposed to this this fun activity. That's right. That's right. Okay. And children come to us naturally joyful. And so exactly. And somewhere curious. along the way, we kind of suck it out, but they come to us full of joy. That's right. And I so say I this. That's what we maintain throughout. Yeah. 
I say to teachers all the time in workshops and things, you know, ki- kids don't come to kindergarten as grade grubbers. They don't, right. most of them don't even know what grades are. Right. Somewhere along the way, the adults introduce this concept to them um, among many things. And suddenly you've got this mindset around school that's overly serious and stressed and anxious. Right. And you just that's have right. to look at kids today and how stressed out they are and how, how anxious they are about college applications or anything else to recognize that whatever we're doing right now is not working. We need to change some things so that our students feel the love of learning um, and, that, and that their grades will take care of themselves. They'll, right. they'll, they'll emerge from the, from the things that they do. Okay. I, I couldn't so, agree more. <laughs> yeah. So let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit to society because I am interested in a few things uh, from your perspective uh, and talk about society as a whole. And I want to start with an open-ended question uh, about January 6th and uh, the aftermath of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, obviously, as an American citizen, I'm interested in your perspective on that. That day for me, even as a non-American, was an emotionally jarring day. And uh, really unlike anything I've ever seen in my 53 years of life. And, and uh, it, was, it was a jarring day. However, I would say that you would have to be willfully ignorant of the political and social climate to be surprised that that occurred. Um, so I want to ask you, not how you felt about it, because I think we know how the vast majority of people felt about it. But I want to ask you just personally, how are you feeling just weeks removed from what happened at the U.S. Capitol? I'm feeling optimistic. Okay. I think, um, you know, that was very, it was a very um, horrible incident, of course. Um, but again, it prompted even more discussions. It, it, it showed um, many people who have been in denial about um, the, the realities of white privilege Right. Um, it, it kind of exposed that again, just showing yeah. how different people have been treated for, um, you know, with different incidents. Right. And so looking at, you know, how a lot of the, the protesters were treated over the summer and then looking at what happened at the Capitol building. And right. so, again, it was it, it brought out conversations. It brought out more awareness. And so the reason I say I'm optimistic is because I'm hoping that um that will bring another level of um, kind of progress right. and movement and, and um, you know, a, a better future. There's always an opportunity to, to try to find the upside of down, right? So maybe mm-hmm. maybe this is what sparks another conversation. Uh, it, 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 I say jarring for a number of reasons, not the least of which was someone carrying the Confederate flag through the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and, and we all know, and I think many of us had this reaction, uh, which was if those if that crowd was majority black or brown, we we all know what would have happened right. uh, to those people. There would have been no sort of peaceful exiting, uh, mm-hmm. and and no sort of Instagram posts about uh, about the insurrection. And uh, but right. but I but I I share your optimism in the sense that I think that whenever we reach these moments, and and what what an incredible year of explosive events. It's just been I think at, oh, yeah. when we come out of this, we are I don't even know if we're going to know how to feel, but it's it's um, it, it, can we find a way to have a more honest conversation? about um, the things in society that really need to be addressed. I I said to Rick Wormley uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, at some point you can't keep saying this is not who we are. You can only say that so many times until you have to look in the mirror and say this, this actually may be who we are, but we've got to find a way forward, right? We've got to find a way to, to reconcile the, the, and and grow together and come together. Your thoughts on that. That's right. No, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to pivot to something that um, caught my attention last week. Uh, I'm a 
a regular watcher of uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. And last week I was watching and something really caught my attention. And I'm interested in your reaction because it was a perspective I, I hadn't heard before. So last week on the show, uh, Bill Maher had Camille Foster on, who is the co-host of a podcast called The Fifth Column. He's a, he's a mm-hmm. co-host of that podcast. And he said something again that caught my attention. And, and I'm not you know, I'm not saying I agree with him. I, I don't really know how I felt about it, other than the fact that it was a, a somewhat different perspective than, I, than I've heard. So I'm interested in your thoughts. So here's how the conversation kind of unfolded. So Bill Maher was asking him about the ubiquity of conversations about race. And he says, you know, his, his question to Camille Foster was, quote, am I wrong not to want to see race all the time? Is ubiquity even effective to make people aware of this issue at every turn? And so in their back and forth conversation, Foster replied, and this is the part I want to get your reaction to. Uh, In his response, he said, quote, talking often about racism and discrimination can make people presume that it exists in places where it is not. And we have to acknowledge that racism is a subjective allegation. He goes on to say, I can presume intent on your behalf where whether or not it exists there or is actually there or not. And it, and this he calls a major defect. And he goes on to say that I don't want to be the object of your referring to Bill Maher. I don't want to be the object of your special concern or anyone else's. So if Camille Foster were with us today and he were on this podcast and he said that, how would you respond to him? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, Take your time. And I think, all right. So I would say that um, if he were here on this podcast, racism is not subjective. Racism is real. If we're looking at racism from a very, a very narrow view of one person treating someone else differently or treating someone else poorly because of um, the color of their skin or their race, that's a more narrow view. And that's where you may, um, it may be more subjective if we look at racism as institutional and how it operates on an institutional level and how it has intentionally operated on an institutional level for the last 400 years in this country, um, you'll see that racism is very real. I would also tell him to look at the data, look at the outcomes. So that is not subjective. There are um, outcomes in terms of health disparities, educational disparities, um, income disparities, um, and just a number of, a plethora of indicators that show disparate outcomes um, based on race in the United States of America. And so it is not subjective. It is um, very real, (laughs) Um, even in terms of housing discrimination and redlining. I mean, these are things that have happened within our society for hundreds of years, and we can see the effects and the impacts of those things right now. And right. so it is, if you're looking at it from an institutional perspective and how it's happened historically and yeah. how that ties to today, um, mm. we'll see that it is very real. Um, yeah. I also think that, um, you know, um, I think sometimes there's a, a bit of racial fatigue people and, and that's people of, of any race could be tired of talking about it, tired of thinking right. about it. that fatigue is very real. Right. But um, that doesn't um, negate the fact that racism does exist in this country and it does manifest on an institutional right. level. Is that is that not the full manifestation of privilege where you get to choose not to talk about race or you can consider right. it to be something that we don't have to talk about or shouldn't? Right. The idea that that I would have racial fatigue or racial equity fatigue would would just scream of white privilege. Uh, Mm -hmm. from my perspective. Is it possible that he's conflating the notion of discrimination 
with the idea that racism is more about power and institutions, whereas discrimination is is my treating individuals poorly. Is that is that possibly where you, that might be coming I, from? I, absolutely, and I think there are a lot of people who um, view it in that way, and that's yeah. why there's a lot of denial about racism because they they think it's more about discrimination or prejudice right. as opposed right. to looking at it from a more systemic and institutional level. Right, and so, you're yeah, absolutely that, that right. That is possible, but you know, yeah, so. the. Um, Statistically, I mean, when you look at percentage of population versus percentage of prison population, when you look at uh, outcomes for schools, I, I don't think it's it's uh, you, it's hard to deny that right. they're uh, that that the game is tilted, if you will, uh, in in one direction, and we need to get things uh, right. uh, get things back. Something else that caught my attention recently is the uh, backlash toward Robin DiAngelo, who is, the, of course, the author of White Fragility. You know, last summer in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, we of course saw a sales explosion in anti-racist books, including Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Mm Anti-Racist and of course, White Fragility. They were both at the top of the bestseller lists all summer and into the fall. So uh, now I want to be careful here not to overreact to uh, potentially a minority opinion, but I've seen it enough to notice that uh, the backlash to this, to Robin D'Angelo now is that here's Robin D'Angelo a white woman who mm-hmm. learned everything she knows about white fragility from black people. And yet here she is uh, a white woman, you know, the sort of criticism is here, here we go again, a white woman, just like all the others profiting off the trauma of the black experience. So mm-hmm. that's one criticism I've heard. Here's the other one I, I recently read. It, it was from a John McCorder of Columbia university. He wrote an article last July in the Atlantic and he wrote this, and and I thought this was an an an, I'm inter- an interesting take, and I'm interested in your perspective. He says, "quote D'Angelo's outlook rests upon the depiction of black people as endlessly delicate poster children within this self gratifying fantasy about how white America needs to think, or better, stop thinking." Her answer to white fragility, in other words, entails an elaborate and pitilessly dehumanizing condensation toward black people. End quote. Too harsh? Do you think? Do you think the criticism of D'Angelo is deserved, or do you think, on the net, that the positive influence white fragility is having on the conversation about racial equity is outweighing any real or manufactured criticism? Yeah. So I have to admit. So I haven't actually read um, the book by Robin D'Angelo. Okay. I have seen one um, one kind of. Um, you know, similar to the, the criticism you just mentioned um, yeah. in terms of having a white woman profit once again. Right. Um, I think that criticism, it doesn't just come from 2020, though. Right. That come it's more rooted in the history of what has happened over time. And so that history has been um, a history of um, Europeans profiting off of black people. Right. And so going back, I mean, even in terms of um, slavery, things that they have learned from black people, things that they took from Africa. And so going back to all of that um, and and just a history of many times black people not being given the credit or compensation for their work, for their intellectual property. And Mm -hmm. so that I think comes that criticism probably comes from the history of that happening. It's not just about her. It's, been, it's the history of how it's happened over hundreds of years over and over. Um, and so, and I think it also, I mean, but in 2020, I, I definitely saw that there's more awareness around um, 
people of color, especially demanding that um, they are compensated for their work because it has been denied for so long right, in right. educational spaces and beyond. Um, and it's, again, systemic. And it happens all over the world, <laughs> definitely all over the country. Yeah. Um, where that just, you know, people of color as, as partic that particularly black people have not been compensated for their work and their intellectual property. And so I think it stems from that. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I, in, in researching that criticism, I've seen both sides of the, the issue. The one assertion is, listen, until white people start paying attention to racial equity and, and racial justice, nothing's going to change. And if Robin DiAngelo, as a white woman, is the one to have white people sit up and take notice, then that's exactly what's necessary. And on the other hand, the criticism, of course, is what I just, you know, outlined to you, which is that here we go again. Um, you know, why, why do these points need, are only valid and, and important when white people stand up and talk about it? So I suppose yep. it might be a catch 22 in some respects that how do we, how do we reconcile that? And, and uh, yeah, and, and I think a, a lot of the frustration comes from, um, so if you have, you know, black people saying this over and over and over and not being believed, not being heard. Right. And then when it comes from someone else, they're not only believed and heard, but they're compensated for it. Right. And so, you know, it, it again, it, it just brings about more inequity and in, um, whose voices are validated, mm -hmm. whose voices are heard, who's believed. A right. lot of racism is about not believing. Right. And so if you've had people for years saying, yes, this is an actual phenomenon that takes place. People say, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. And then a white woman comes along and says the same thing. And it's like, oh, OK, let's listen. Right. And we're going to make you, you know, and, and now you're profiting as well. Right. And so I, I agree. It, it is a catch 22. It's good. People are listening. But in order to, I think, really address and fix some of the inequities, um, black people also have to be paid and compensated and heard and listened to and believed. Right. So. Right. Coming at the conversation from a, a starting place that uh, not of cynicism, but of we believe you and finding ways to engineer that conversation without, I suppose, appropriating ideas. Yep. I mean, I don't, I don't know her. I, I haven't listened a lot to her personally. And it, and it sounds to me from your perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's mm -hmm. not so much about her, but again, right. the institutionalization of this white people property, pro, uh, profiting Absolutely. off Absolutely. Of, uh, of, of, of what they learn yep. uh, from black people when, when right. black people, brown people, indigenous people should be believed mm -hmm. from the get-go. Right. Absolutely. Um, and again, yeah. and I haven't, you know, I'm not as aware of the issue. I, I saw enough. like maybe one or two posts about it. I haven't really sure, researched sure. and read a lot about it, but that is just kind of my initial reaction. And yeah. I'm just knowing it comes from a history and not just that one person. Similar to the George, George Floyd incident, it wasn't just about George Floyd, but a history right. of this happening over and over again. Right, right. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, but whether or not you've read the book or not, you, you, uh, you, you deeply understand the issue and your perspective is, is definitely appreciated. All right, we're going to finish up um, here. Last question before we get into more of the fun side. We've had some pretty serious topics today, but uh, I want to finish up by circling back to Teach for the Culture. Uh, besides having um, what, what I said earlier, some fabulous merchandise. I, I, I love the stuff. Um, I, I just love the simplicity of it, the messages, all of it. Um, but what's the vision? What's the mission? What's the message? What's wh Why teach for the culture? And maybe just let listeners know kind of what your vision is for that. All right. So definitely it, it, it is still, it, it started out um, and is still about building community. 
yeah. especially amongst educators and educators being defined broadly. So not just people who work in schools, but um, mm -hmm. educators who just, um, who, who share their knowledge and expertise and ways of knowing and being in a variety of ways. Um, it's definitely about expanding um, who we view as educators and who we view as having, being able to contribute that knowledge to the field and, and being able to impact youth mm -hmm. um, about building community the next level of work for Teach for the Culture is going to be an actual um, an online community platform where we're going to be um, having courses, um, exchanging ideas, guest speakers, and things like that. Um, yeah. And just really being able to connect. Because I think when we're able to connect on a broader level around issues of education and racial justice within education and equity and joy and, for, and all of those things, we become even more powerful. And I think I definitely wanna um, seize the moment and the kind of movement we're in and, and make sure we continue to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so in addition to just spreading those messages through right. merchandise and apparel, um, the next level is going to be actually working with teachers, educators, schools, school districts to really begin impacting the change um, right. on, the, on the school and district level. Yeah, great way to get that message out for sure. But but uh, I, I have no doubt uh, that d deeper work is coming. So listeners, stay tuned to that uh, for sure. So we're going to finish up with uh, some fun here, Shauna. I always finish every interview with a segment uh, called Three Questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you just three very lighthearted, quick questions, just so listeners can get to know you a little bit more uh, on a personal level, nothing too intrusive. So here's the first one. Um, ice cream in a cone or in a dish? A cup. Which, which, how do you okay. prefer your ice cream? <laughs> so I like it in a cup with the cone on top, and ah. I can break up the cone and I eat it with the ice cream. <laughs> and so that is my favorite. My, my favorite part of an ice cream cone is actually the cone, but I like it in a cup. You, you like it in the cup. Look at you. You're combining both. That's smart. That's I have right. to try that one day. Absolutely. <laughs> do you have a favorite flavor of ice cream? Um, I, I'm very simple. So like vanilla, chocolate, okay. coconut. Okay. So just like, yeah. yeah. You keep it real, keep it old school, and, and yeah, keep and it old school. Maybe some, you uh, you know, chocolate chip cookie dough, Oreo. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. I love it. Um, second one Who is the most famous Temple University graduate who's in your contacts? Oh, the most famous one in my contacts. There's, and there's a lot of them too. Like when you look at Temple University, there's a lot of uh, famous people. You got any, or, or here's the second part if you can't think of one. Which famous Temple University graduate would you want to be in your contacts? Okay, well, I'll name one that's in my contacts. Okay. Um, so, Mark Lamont Hill. Okay. Um, he also went to Temple University. He's also, yeah. he's actually back there as a professor right now. Okay. Um, and he taught at Columbia University as well, my other alma mater. So, I would, yeah. I would go yeah. with that one. Okay, awesome. <laughs> uh, and the uh, last one here, Shauna, is uh, if there was a movie made about your life, which actor would you want to play Shauna Brown? Mm. Which actor would I want to play? Ooh, I would, this is a trick question. So I really <laughs> want to play myself. <laughs> okay, well, we can do that too. <laughs> trick question. Um, Shauna Brown as Shauna Brown. She could yeah, do that. Yeah, Shauna Brown as Shauna Brown. I, I like the sound of that, you know. <laughs> we can go with that for sure. Uh, if you can't think of but, anybody else. But, but yeah. yeah, maybe... Um, Gabrielle Union, maybe. Oh, yeah. Okay. Awesome. I got a, a bonus question for you, Shauna. Uh, do you have a Super Bowl pick? 
I do not. I do not. Not this year. Not this year. Yeah. Are you uh, with your time in Tampa? Are you an Eagles fan or? or... I'm not an Eagles. I'm actually a Giants fan. Giants fan. A Giants fan. I'm a Giants fan. fan. Okay. It's been been a tough go for the Giants last year. Yeah, it has been, but I'm sticking with them, you know, Giants and Celtics. So I have the Boston and the New York. (laughs) There you go. Giants and Celtics. So uh, Celtics have been fun to cheer cheer for over the last few years, but uh, obviously fallen short of of a championship, but they're a good team. And, uh, and, uh, but the Giants, it's been a, it's been a tough, uh, Saquon Barkley, probably the only, uh, the only thing to cheer for. Although I will say your Giants beat my Seahawks this year, which uh, was unexpected. So I wasn't happy about that. So Sean, I have one final question for you. um, And I've asked this question of all the people I've interviewed, and it really is about success and happiness. It's a question that I've sort of run through the podcast and kind of a larger picture here. And the question is simply this, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? I would say success is doing what you love and loving what you do. If you can do what you love and you love what you do, to me, that is success. I love that. Do, doing what you love and love what you do. Loving that's what you that's, do. Uh, that's easy to remember. But simple, and, yep. and, and yet a, uh, a great mantra uh, to live by. Uh, Shauna, I, I can't thank you enough. I know we need to get you out of here. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join me today. I've really look forward to meeting you and I'm glad we had a chance to have this conversation. I feel like I need to have you back so we can talk about melanin and STEM oh, and have that, con- yeah. that conversation. So down the road, expect another email, uh, one right. about <laughs> expansive, uh, culturally responsive assessments and the other one about another podcast appearance because awesome. this has been I'm really, really enjoyable. Awesome. Uh, Listeners, uh, really want to encourage you to uh, check out Teach for the Culture, both on Instagram and on Facebook. And Melanin in STEM is also on Instagram and Facebook as well. And I'll put those links to those uh, pages uh, in the show notes as well. Shauna, are there any other websites or platforms that we want to make listeners aware of? Um, Yeah, those are the two main ones. I have another one that is on Facebook called School Leadership 101. Okay. And so that's another area. Um, if for aspiring or new school leaders, you want to check that out, um, please follow. Fant- fantastic. Uh, Shauna, uh, this has been for me, uh, just a pleasure to meet you. Uh, it's been very insightful and, uh, and also a lot of fun. So I've, I've really enjoyed right. you having, uh, thanks for m- so much for being here today. Awesome. And thank you so much for having me and for all the work you're doing in this area. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address a question that I get quite often. And even this past week in a few Zoom sessions, uh, I received this question as well uh, when talking about grading reform. And the question centers around the idea of isn't moving to sound grading or standards-based grading just more work for the teacher? And I suppose I could argue that it's the work, uh, obviously verifying what learning has occurred and the degree to which it has occurred is one of the most important jobs we have. And, you know, it's one of our core responsibilities to families. But in addition to families, it's a core responsibility to taxpayers if we work in the public system and and uh, and certainly stakeholders if we're working in a private system. So, you know, this, this is the work that we have to do in making sure that we accurately report where students are in their learning is arguably the one of the most important things we do. Now, At the same time, I do understand where that question is coming from on a more granular level. Um, You know, when teachers ask that question, they're not thinking about sort of the the big ideas of the job. They're thinking about how they spend their minutes. And that question makes two assumptions, of course. One is 100% true, 
the other might not be true. So the the assumption that's 100% true is the the idea that uh, Tom, you know, listen, my my days are already busy. My days are packed. Um, where am I going to squeeze in time for and fill in the blank, reassessment, following up on late work, whatever the case might be. That is 100% true. I, I just, I, I don't meet educators that aren't busy. Uh, sometimes in workshops and presentations, I'll sort of um, ask the question a little bit tongue in cheek, of course, how many of you are busy? And, uh, and I can't even ask the question with a straight face. Educators are busy. Now, here's the assumption that may not be true. And that is the assumption that everything that you are currently doing to fill your time already represents the most important work. That I don't know to be true. Uh, it could be, but it could also be that you're doing things that aren't bringing with them as big a payoff as maybe maybe other things. So let's just go with the first one and let's just assume everyone's busy. All right. And we know that. That's We don't have to assume it. We know it's to be true. Everyone is busy. So any change effort should, among many things, trigger trigger an audit of your current practices, your policies, your priorities to gauge what we need to do less of. If everyone is busy, and, and we know that they are, then squeezing more into an already packed day in terms of the distribution of our time and the practices, it's unsustainable. So if you're going to do more of one thing, you have to consider doing less of something else. It has to be a net zero approach, especially with grading reform. Right, if I'm going to add this, I take away that. So let's go with the example. I often hear, you know, Tom, reassessment is just more work for teachers. Yep, no denial. Um, you know, when I talk about reassessment, I'm very honest with people and say, look, this is more. Doing an assessment one time versus doing an assessment multiple times clearly represents more work. However, it's also one of the most important important exercises we do, as we talked about in episode nine, when I talked about reassessment, right? If we know that some students need longer to learn, and we know that it's important that students actually learn what is being taught, then reassessment has to be part of our repertoire. Reassessment is an inconvenience, to put it mildly, if you are overly obsessed with coverage, and you assume universally in advance that those students who weren't successful should have tried harder to get it right the first time. Now, it, it could be true for individual students that they should have tried harder, but to assume that in advance and to make policy or practice around that is, I think, a false assumption. So again, every discussion about adding should be accompanied with a conversation about subtracting. What am I going to do less of? You see, again, net zero. No one gets any more time overall than anyone else. Sure, there can be nuances between common planning time and prep time and all of those different things, but essentially... The difference between effective and ineffective teaching is in how we utilize our time. It's how we make use of the minutes that we are afforded. Reassessment is more work, yes, but maybe you stopped collecting daily homework assignments. That's less work. So really what we're talking about is a, redist a redistribution of our minutes that aligns with our priorities. And of course, those priorities need to be educationally sound, but a redistribution of our minutes, right? I know that's easier said than done because... The assumption is that the decisions we've already made represent our priorities and how we're going to use our time. But again, the question is about adding new practices or routines. So if you're motivated to do so, or it becomes collectively agreed upon, we have to make room for the new practice. So 
the what am I going to stop doing dialogue, whether that dialogue is internal or as a team, those conversations are equally important. Grading reform should represent different work and really shouldn't involve, in the end, more or less on the net. It really should be about just a redistribution of of where we spend our time. Now, this assumes that you're already doing the work, right? That's where the redistribution comes from. On rare occasion, and I want to emphasize rare, on rare occasion, there might be someone who's doing less than what is essential in teaching and assessment. They, listen, I, I don't know it to be true. It's rare, but maybe we come across that person. Well, that person is going to have to do more just to fulfill the responsibilities of the work. Now, once we get them there, then it's a redistribution of, of the minutes, right? So it just depends on where we're starting from. But that's that's the minority. That's the exception to the rule. The vast majority of teachers are busy, and the vast majority of teachers are making good decisions about what's necessary for learners. So the prospect of new has to bring a redistribution of our time. That redistribution of our time then reflects our reset priorities, which then leads to that net zero approach I'm talking about. And whether that's grading reform or any change effort, we know teachers are busy. We know teachers are maxing out their time. It doesn't always mean that we're using our time most effectively, but that can be corrected and that can be addressed. So approaching any reform effort through a net zero lens is the way we keep balance and allow us to prevent teachers, principals, everyone from feeling completely overwhelmed by the prospect of doing what we know is right for students. That's all we have time for today. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates, at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer, so follow both those accounts on Twitter. Shimmer Education on Facebook, as well as Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. So no shortage of social media platforms through which you can connect to myself or to the podcast itself to keep up to date on what's happening. Also, a reminder to email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast to TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. One more reminder, uh, the YouTube channel, please subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Later this year, I'm going to start to add in some new features to that channel to make it a little more uh, useful, shorter segments, different sort of topics. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Next week, my guest is going to be the one and only Jay McTie. We're going to discuss designing authentic performance tasks and projects, which of course is such an important and relevant topic. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like what you're hearing and think others would benefit, please spread the word about the podcast to some of your colleagues or maybe through social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 